I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. We continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the Hamas attack of October 7th, the bombing of Gaza that has happened since then, and related subjects on this edition of the program with our guest, Zachary Foster of Palestine Nexus, This conversation was recorded amidst breaking news that the Netanyahu government is formulating emergency regulations to imprison citizens who, quote-unquote, harm national morale at this time. That's being reported by the Israeli publication Haaretz. We'll discuss that in the conversation to follow. We'll also be talking about the history of Hamas and much, much more. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Zachary Foster of Palestine Nexus. Welcome to Parallax Views, another guest that joins us on short notice. I'm very grateful for him joining us on short notice. Zachary Foster of Palestine Nexus. And uh, again, he joins us uh, out of the blue here. I I asked him and he came on very quickly. Uh, We're going to be covering the situation in Gaza, talking Israel-Palestine. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Zachary, maybe before we get into the nitty gritty, you could give a little bit about uh, your background and uh, how you became interested in Palestine. I know you grew up in a, a Jewish household, may have started out a, a Zionist family. Um, so how, how did you come to understand the Palestinian viewpoint? That's correct. I grew up in a, a Jewish Zionist household, went to Jewish schools, Jewish summer camps, Zionist youth groups, went to Israel with my Zionist youth group in high school. 
And so I was raised with this very pungent uh, flavor of American Judaism and Zionism. And then when I went to university, I began to study the historian's version of Israel-Palestine uh, rather than the propagandist version of Israel-Palestine that I was raised with. And that led me down a rabbit hole. I studied abroad at the University of Jerusalem, got to know Palestinians, got to learn what life was like on the ground for Palestinians in the, in the region. And one, one thing led to the next, and I ended up doing a PhD in Palestinian history. And so it's been a, a passion of mine for, I would say, two decades now. So before we get into what is happening in Gaza, I was wondering if you could comment on this story out of Haaretz right now. Uh, Likud minister formulates emergency regulations to imprison citizens who harm national morale. Uh, this could allow communications minister uh, Shlomo Karhi to arrest citizens, to direct police to arrest citizens, remove them from their homes, seize property, if he believes they have spread information that could harm national morale or served as the basis for enemy propaganda. Uh, this sounds very Orwellian. Could you offer your commentary on this? This is the latest among a series of attempts by the current Israeli government and, by the way, the previous Israeli government, led by Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett, to clamp down on any type of democratic, nonviolent uh, <clears throat> resistance, uh, be it in, in, in verbal format, be it in protesting format, to Israeli rule. We saw already, it's been a year and a half now since uh, the Israeli government placed six nonprofit organizations, six NGOs on um, on Israel's terror watch list. Um, and those NGOs were um, famous for documenting human rights violations in the West Bank, <clears throat> documenting human rights violations in Gaza, documenting human rights violations in Israel. Uh, they had no connections to terrorism. In fact, the EU completely ignored Israel's call to label these organizations terrorist organizations because they were obviously the exact opposite of terrorist organizations. They were uh, uh, defending human rights. So um, that, that 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 took place already, we're, we're talking over a year ago. Um, then the Israeli government uh, tried to tax uh, foreign donations to those nonprofit organizations, I believe by 60%, I believe was the, the figure. Try and operate an NGO when all of your funding is taxed at, at 60, 60%. And the way they wrote that bill was, su was in such a way that it would only impact basically left-wing NGOs and not the right-wing NGOs like like um, the, 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 the City of David Foundation that funds settlement projects, the Atert uh, Kwanim uh, uh, NGO that funds uh, uh, settler colonial projects in, in East Jerusalem and in other parts of the West Bank. And so what we see now is a continuation of this very, very worrying, uh, troublesome trend, which is that uh, the Israeli, the current Israeli government is trying to clamp down on all opposition to its rule. We saw, by the way, uh, for the past nine months, Israelis have been gathering in Tel Aviv every Saturday night and other places around the country uh, protesting the quote unquote judicial reform in which the current Israeli government is trying to remove the judiciary's oversight over government decisions. Again, anything that the uh, any uh, any type of institution, be it the judiciary, or be it media, be it nonprofit organizations that get in the way of Israel's attempt to annex the West Bank, to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from the Jordan Valley, from the E1 zone, from the South Hebron Hills and Masaf Ariyata, any attempt, uh, any obstacle placed in front of the Israeli government's desire to have complete control over all of historic Palestine is is now being uh, um, deemed by the Israeli government to be illegal, uh, to be um, you know criminalized. And that's where we're at right now. And this is targeting 
both, uh, you, you know, the, the Israeli government essentially under Netanyahu is targeting both Palestinians and dissident Israelis. People really need to understand that this is very dangerous. That's exactly right. For the first time in recent memory, uh, the massive protesters are not Palestinian, they're Jewish Israeli. Okay, they're waving Israeli flags. These are Zionist, Zionists to their core. And they're just what they oppose is they oppose the removal of all checks and balances on Israeli government decisions. Recall that in places like the United States, you have an executive, you have a legislative and you have judicial branches. So you have three branches of government. Um, and maybe you might say the media is the fourth branch of the government. Now, in, in places like Israel, to begin with, you only have two branches of government because the legislative and the executive branch are one branch. Right. You vote for the, the um, <clears throat> you vote for a political party. And that political party is going to join a coalition with other political parties. And that coalition is both the executive, it is both the prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, as well as the legislative. Uh, um, so th there is already no distinction between legislative and executive power in the state of Israel. And then when you when you factor in the fact that the current Israeli government is trying to remove the judiciary as a check and a balance on government oversight and government decisions, what you have left is no checks and balances. What you have left is a government that is able to do whatever it wants um, to whomever it wants. And now what you're seeing, uh, um, as you as you correctly pointed out early on in the show, that now they're trying to remove any type of. Uh, um, dissidents from civil society, uh, from individuals, from journalists, just literally writing a tweet, writing a, a, a Facebook post, writing a, an Instagram post, you know, uh, just writing a, a, any type of uh, uh, content that 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 stands in contradiction to whatever Israel sees as it's in, in its interests. And so it's a very worrying, dangerous situation we have. So. For listeners, I've had a lot of listeners in the past few days, even though I've been covering Israel-Palestine for, you know, a number of years now, I have a lot of newer listeners that, you know, are just learning about this topic. And a lot of people in, in the U.S. here are just getting interested and really taking notice. One thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, a lot of people will talk about uh, Israel as a settler colonial state. I mean, we can bracket that off for now. I think what people really have to understand is that in a place like the West Bank right now, in the present, there is a colonization project. There are people, Palestinians, being removed from the West Bank uh, by settlers. Could you explain that situation? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. It's It was, I think, the number one issue facing Palestinians, aside from the siege on Gaza prior to October 7th, 2023, um, what you have happening in the West Bank is, first of all, it's been going on for decades. There's nothing new about it, but it has intensified in recent years. So what you have, by the way, I would actually not call um, the the uh, what is taking place in the West Bank as settler uh, colonies. I would actually just call them colonies because they nevertheless want to maintain uh, their connection to their <clears throat> to the motherland, right? So think of a settler co colonialist and think of the classic cases where you had settler colonies in the United States, in Australia, in Canada, um, in, in New Zealand, in, in South Africa. These classic cases of settler colonies, in most cases, eventually the settlers wanted to sever the connection to the motherland and they wanted to become independent. That is not the case in the West Bank. There is no desire among settlers in the West Bank to sever the connection to the motherland, i.e. Israel, and create a new state and a new society. That's not what's happening. They're actually just straight up colonies. And so <clears throat> since 1967, Israel has embarked upon 
um, the, the colonization of the West Bank, right? We're talking about a territory, maybe the size of, uh, you know, ha- uh, quite a small territory um, in which currently you have something like three, maybe three and a half million Palestinians living, and you have 800,000 Israeli settlers living in uh, the West Bank. And we know that something like 20, maybe 30% of the land um, in which on which the set, settlements have been built is, is privately owned Palestinian land. Um, and what we see over the past few months and few years is an acceleration in um, in the settlement enterprise. We're talking um, more uh, Israeli Jewish only settlements built on private Palestinian land. And we're talking about more uh, apartheid roads. Those are Jewish only Israeli Jewish only roads that only Israeli Jews can drive on. Palestinians cannot drive on them. We're talking about the entire occupation infrastructure, you know, building <clears throat> water pipelines, building electricity, connecting these settlements to the Israeli power grid, the Israeli water grid. Um, and so those settlements are are, are expanding. In, 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 and what happens when settlements expand is that um, you get oftentimes Palestinian displacement. And so what's happening, for example, in the South Hebron Hills um, is that um, Israel has decided that it wants to maintain control, complete control over that region for its own military purposes. It does not want Palestinians living there. And so what it does is it declares the land that Palestinians have been living on for, in some cases, many, many decades. It declares that land a um, uh, um, it declares that land a, f- a firing zone in some cases, and thus it, um, and thus everything that Palestinians build within that firing zone is illegal. So Israeli army comes in, demolishes the homes. This has been happening in an ongoing uh, fashion every single week, more or less, for the past I would say over a year now. Um, you can follow Basil Adri, who is a Palestinian journalist on the ground reporting day in and day out from Masaf Riyata. He's reporting the incursions by the Israeli military. Every week they'll come in to Masaf Riyata. They will destroy a water tank. They will destroy um, you know, uh, uh, connections to the electricity grid. They will destroy uh, homes. They will destroy cars. The Israeli military will confiscate vehicles. Okay, so that's happening in Masaf Riyata and the other, there are other Palestinian hamlets around that region. It's happening also, by the way, in the Jordan Valley, um, which has long been a region that Israel has desired and uh, desired to maintain control over. Why? Because the Jordan Valley is a region that <clears throat> lies at the border between the West Bank and Jordan. And Israel being completely obsessed with its own security, wanting to have total security and military control over all the land between the river and the sea, of course, wants to maintain control over the region that borders the West Bank and the neighboring country, which is Jordan. And so for a period now, actually, it's been going on for more than a decade, but just in the past year or two, there's been a massive acceleration in the trend in which Israeli settlers are basically harassing Palestinian shepherds throughout the entire Jordan Valley. In fact, I was just uh, in a Palestinian village called Humsa uh, in in the northeastern Jordan Valley a few weeks ago. I spent a night with Palestinian shepherds. They live right next to a guy by the name of Moshe every single day. And I witnessed this with my own two eyes. Moshe takes his tractor onto their fields, harasses their flocks of sheep, comes into their backyard, sips his morning coffee on their porch, smiling and laughing at them, literally harassing them day in and day out. That is what he does for recreation. You might go play basketball. Your friends might go to a music concert. He wakes up every morning and says, how many times today am I going to go and harass my Palestinian settlers until they flee? 
And so, and, and, and the goal ultimately is to make it impossible for them to maintain their life in these, uh, set, in, in these uh, population centers, in these villages and towns throughout the Jordan Valley. And, and we've seen already over the past few months, um, multiple villages depopulated. We're talking villages of hundreds of people depopulated throughout the Jordan Valley. There was an excellent article, kind of a, a magnum opus written by Oren Ziv, published in 972 Magazine a few weeks ago, where he documents with excruciating detail Every single incidence of the ethnic cleansing happening to Palestinians in the Jordan Valley. Um, and then on top of that, you just have the continual harassment of Palestinians in places like Beita, where uh, Israeli settlers have now uh, established a new outpost in the northern West Bank. You have continual harassment of Palestinians around Hebron, where they take over one house and then another house. We're talking about the old city of Hebron, where something like a few hundred Jews live amidst tens of thousands of Palestinians protected by the Israeli army, pushing out Palestinians further and further. So wherever you go, whether it is in the West Bank, in the E1 zone, uh, with Khan al-Ahmar. They're trying to uh, remove Palestinians from Khan al-Ahmar. And that case has been ongoing for probably more than a decade now. In, in, the, in the northern West Bank, in the Jordan Valley, in the southern Hebron Hills, um, wherever you go in the West Bank, you have Israeli attempts, both on the part of the settlers who are backed by the Israeli government, as well as the Israeli military directly, attempting to uh, depopulate Palestinian villages and ethnically cleanse entire regions of Palestinians. Real quick, because I, I thought I heard you say Palestinian settlers in the Jordan Valley. Did you you mean that these are Palestinians that have been there already that are being harassed by uh, Israeli settlers? That that's correct. Apologies, that was a slip of the tongue. Uh, you know, I would not describe the Palestinians living in the West Bank who have been there long before there were any Israelis there. Um, I would not describe any of them as settlers. I, I meant to say the the Jewish Israeli settlers harassing and attacking the indigenous Palestinian inhabitants of the West Bank. So then. In terms of what is happening right now in Gaza, because I do think these are separate issues, people will talk about uh, the Hamas attacks of October 7th. I think it's important to uh, note that the West Bank had nothing to do with that. You know, I mean, Hamas doesn't run the West Bank, and yet people in the West Bank are suffering. Um, can you talk a little bit about your initial reactions uh, to the attack on the 7th? and what you think people are missing about it, uh, where context needs to be added. What, what's your basic uh, analysis? Just like everybody, I was horrified to see the images of innocent civilians being slaughtered at music festivals inside their homes in Kibbutzim on the south of Israel. I condemn all acts of violence against innocent civilians, no matter whether they're committed by Israel or by Hamas. Of course, what you have to remember is that history did not begin on October 7th. Okay, Israel imposed a land, sea, and air blockade on the Gaza Strip beginning in 2007. By 2010, the United Nations declared that that blockade was illegal under inter international law because it was imposing collective punishment on millions of Palestinians. Um, that 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 blockade has led 90% of people to lack access to fresh drinking water. It has led to an electricity crisis where Palestinians get between five and maybe 10 hours of electricity per day. It has led uh, to a food crisis. 80% of Palestinians in, in Gaza are dependent on food handouts by the UN and other nonprofits. It has also led to an employment crisis. You have 50% unemployment rate. This is all before October 7th, okay? In addition to that, you have a mental health crisis. The vast majority of kids have PTSD. If you've been born in the Gaza script since 2007, you've only known a life of siege and blockade and war. In addition to all those crises, Israel has imposed 
Israel has fought five wars on the people of Gaza. The first in 2008, when Israel killed nearly a thousand innocent Palestinians. If you look back to the Goldstone report, a report commissioned uh, to determine whether or not there were war crimes uh, committed during the war, the report found that it investigated 11 incidents during which Israel uh, killed civilians. Uh, I believe 251 civilians were found to be killed in those 11 incidents. In 10 of the 11 investigated incidents, Israel found, uh, excuse me, the Goldstone report found no military, uh, justifiable military objective. There was there was no attempt to uh, target militants or military targets. It was, these were indiscriminate attacks on civilians. Same thing happened in 2012 when Israel killed 100 Palestinians, 100 Palestinian civilians. Same thing happened in 2014 when, uh, same thing, Israel killed 1,500 innocent Palestinian civilians. The uh, the reporting, I think it was a UN report that came out after that were found that in, the, in 15 cases that were investigated, that were where innocent civilians were killed. Six of the 15 incidents, uh, there was no justifiable military objective. Then you have 2018, when Israel just literally slaughtered hundreds of innocent, unarmed Palestinian protesters who, who were protesting against um, the siege and the blockade, demanding the right of return. In one day alone, in May uh, 2020, excuse me, in May 2018, Israel slaughtered 60 unarmed Palestinian protesters on a single day. Um, and of course, 2021, the latest war when Israel killed another 250 uh, unarmed Palestinians. And of course, the Hamas and Islamic Jihad also commit indiscriminate acts of violence against Israel, but on an order of magnitude one to two, and an or, and one to two orders of magnitude less deadly and less violent. And while the entire world condemns Hamas and condemns the terrorism that uh, indiscriminate targeting uh, of Israeli civilians carried out by Hamas, the entire world is supporting Israel, is backing Israel, and telling Israel it has a right to defend itself while it does exactly the same thing, dropping bombs on civilian areas and residential neighborhoods when it knows full well that it is killing innocent civilians. And so it's incredibly tragic. And so that is the context. I think that is what you need to understand to begin to understand why it is that Hamas committed this absolutely gruesome uh, uh, attack on Israeli civilians in October 2023. I think we're in the midst of what I would call a major information war right now. And you're hearing a lot of different talking points thrown out there. One of the talking points I keep hearing uh, from, I, I would say, very pro-Israel adjacent voices is, uh, you know, the material conditions and horrors of Gaza are all the responsibility of Hamas. They were elected you know, a decade ago, it's all their fault. Why haven't they built infrastructure? How can you blame Israel for that? Do you want to respond to those kind of talking points? Yeah, so I think it's important to remember that Hamas has been around for a lot longer than eight days, okay? In fact, Hamas has been a lot longer since it, it, it came to power in free and fair democratic elections in 2006. The thing that led Israel to impose that a devastating blockade, that devastating illegal blockade. Hamas dates back to the 1970s, okay? And during the 1970s, you had a guy, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. He, he was um, you know, a, a religious Muslim and started an Islamic charity. And they were focused on providing education, providing healthcare, uh, opening uh, health clinics, um, helping orphans, um, providing social services, religious education, preaching. Right, so basically, um, totally apolitical, uh, totally nonviolent, um, essentially a, a humanitarian, a social, educational, religious organization. 
Israel in the early 1980s saw this organization, which was not yet called Hamas, it didn't change its name to Hamas until the late 80s, but it saw this organization as a potential counterweight to the much more revolutionary and much more violent PLO, which had committed all kinds of attacks against Israeli civilians in Israel and abroad throughout the 60s and 70s. And so Israel funded and supported the, the this Islamic charity. Um in the early 1980s. And essentially, even as late as 1987, this organization was nonviolent, uh, was committed to charity work. And essentially what, what changed everything was the first intifada, okay? And it was Israel's gruesome response, um, Israel's violent response to primarily nonviolent kids throwing rocks. I mean, that, if you kind of think of what the first intifada was, it was strikes, Okay, it was Palestinians saying we are going on strike. We are closing down schools today. We are closing down shops today, uh, in solidarity uh, with the Palestinians being killed in 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 opposition to Israeli occupation. And so you had strikes. You had tons of protests. Almost always nonviolent, unless you include you know a, a, an eight year old kid throwing a stone at an Israeli soldier with an M sixteen. I mean, if you call that violence, sure. But basically, these are for the most part Palestinian kids, um, and and Israel responded with gruesome brutality. Okay, we're talking nearly 200,000 Palestinians were imprisoned. Okay, you had um, you had, uh, uh, you know, tens of thousands of Palestinians who were whose bones were broken, something like 20% of the Palestinians who had broken bones were under the age of five. Okay, so this was a gruesome assault on Palestinian civilian resistance, primarily nonviolent resistance. And, you know, up until and, and so that that uh, revolt, that uh, uprising known as the first intifada, it kicked off in December 1987. And for the entire first year of that revolt. Okay, so we're talking until the end of 1988, Hamas had not carried out a single violent attack all the while. This Israel is also had, before the infamous charter that we'll get into later, I guess. Yes, let's get let's talk about the charter. So this is before Hamas had committed a single violent act. Um, Israel had slaughtered 142 Palestinians in Gaza, while at the same time, guess how many uh, Israeli soldiers and civilians uh, suffered casualties in the Gaza Strip during that first year of Israel's uh, of the uprising? Zero. Zero Israeli casualties, 142 dead Palestinians. And people wonder why Hamas turned to violence. Well, it's pretty clear why they turned to violence. They were absolutely enraged at what at the violence that Israel had committed against innocent Palestinian civilians. Look, it's more than just that, of course. You had not just the Hamas uh, uh, start to carry out. And so you had not just Hamas start to carry out violent attacks. You had other Palestinian groups like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Of course, you had PLO had, had you know, had, uh, you know, a presence in the in the territories where they were, you know, committing, uh, you know, more and more violent acts. But I, what I would say is that Israel brought this upon itself with its disproportionate and grotesque use of violence that turned Hamas from a charity organization to a militant resistance organization. And from 1987, things just, you know, the cycle of violence, right? Things just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, you know, in, in 1990, it, Palestine, so you have the, the Hamas charter, the infamous charter that every single Jewish American and their mother can quote to you. This uh, is probably, the one that mentions the protocols of Zion and talks about the destruction of Israel, but go on. 
Correct. It calls for the destruction of Israel. It cites some uh, canonical uh, hadiths, Sahih and Bukhari and Muslim. This hadith that you know, if Jews hide behind a tree, you know, you should kill them. So it, it, it cites this very anti-Semitic language. It talks about you know uh, calling for Israel's uh, calling for the destruction of Israel. But the crazy thing is, during the same year, okay, that Israel that that Hamas uh, wrote this charter, there were Hamas leaders, including Sheikh Ahmed Yassin himself who said, we will agree to a peace with Israel if Israel accepts, if Israel withdraws its military forces from the Palestinian-occupied territories and acknowledges and accepts the Palestinians' right of return to Israel-Palestine. But of course, Israel had no had never any intent to uh, um, withdraw from the territories. Israel wanted com- to maintain complete military control of, of all Palestinians. Again, uh, see above, Israel is completely obsessed with security, will never let Palestinians have any control of their own destiny. That would be a risk to Israelis, according to the kind of Israeli security mindset. And so Israel was never going to withdraw from the territories. And Israel was never, in its wildest dreams, going to let Palestinians, who they themselves expelled from their towns and villages in 1948, return to their homes. Why? Because Israel is obsessed with its own demographic majority, with its own Jewish demographic majority. It sees its Jewish demographic majority as its number one concern, right alongside its uh, obsession with security. And so the idea that Israel would allow people who have been expelled from their homes and who've been refugees for decades to return to their homes and challenge that demographic Jewish majority in Israel was unthinkable. And it still is unthinkable today. For Israel chose ethno-nationalism. It chose an ethno-national state over peace in 1988. And you know this is the same time that um, you know, Israel is continuing to clamp down on the occupied territories beginning in the late 80s and early 90s. Israel starts to, you know, implement closures on the Palestinian territories, lockdowns preventing Palestinians from leaving. It, it begins to massacre Palestinians. In one incident in, in Jerusalem in 1990, Israel slaughtered 22 uh, um, nonviolent Palestinian protesters in Jerusalem. And what did Hamas do? Of course, they were enraged and they committed one of their, if not their first attack on, on Israeli civilians in 1990, in late 1990, as a response uh, to that October 1990 uh, assault and slaughter of 22 innocent uh, Palestinians. And so what you have here is a cycle of violence in which, you know, Palestine Palestinians resist, be it nonviolently, be it somewhat violently, be it violently, to their status as occupied and oppressed peoples, to the ethnic cleansing, to the home demolitions, uh, uh, to the uh, their uh, status as second-class citizens in an apartheid state. They reject that. They resist that in whatever way they do. Israel embraces its number one kind of principle, its dispro- principle of disproportionality in which whatever Palestinians do, whatever resistance Palestinians show, Israel will come in with even more force. If Palestinians kill one Israeli, uh, uh, pa- Israel will kill 10 Palestinians. That is kind of Israel's foundational military doctrine that uh, David Ben-Gurion stated and that has been really part and parcel and the principle of every single Israeli government since 1948. If you could, I think it's very important that we talk about, uh, you know, the farthest ends of the political far right in Israel uh, over the years. So I'm thinking about figures like uh, Baruch Goldstein and also a figure like Yigel Amir, uh, who famously was the assassin uh, behind the death of uh, Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, what should people know about these figures and these sort of, I, I guess, followers of Rabbi Meir Kahane? 
Yeah, America Hane was an Israeli-American racist and fascist who moved to Israel and started a, a, a political party in the state of Israel, I believe in the 1980s, Kach, uh, I believe, which means, you know, take, uh, well, um, in, in the 1980s, which was outlawed. Um, it was outlawed by the state of Israel for being race for being too racist for openly for its open racism. By the way, uh, Smotrich and Benvir, who are both ministers in Israel's current government, are ideological heirs of uh, of Merak Kahane. Right, and they fact, belong uh, to Smotrich is the religious Zionism party, and uh, the Jewish Power Party is uh, Ben Giver's party. But go on, are you back? Uh, apologies, I think I just cut off for a sec. I'm back. Yeah. I was saying, uh, just I was I, I cut in there for a second to say that uh, Smotrich, of course, is associated with the religious Zionism party, and uh, Ben Giver is associated with Otsma uh, Yehudit or the Jewish Power Party. But go on. Yes, that's exactly correct. In fact, Ben Gvir has a a, a picture of Merika Hane again, who was a was was uh, um, his political party was out banned in the Knesset uh, for its racism um, and I believe terrorism as well. Um, and 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 so he, what you have today, you have a, 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 a the, the security minister, okay, the guy in charge of security in the West Bank. Um, he is, excuse me, security in Israel, I believe. You know, he um, you know speaks very highly of Israeli racists and terrorists. You know, he himself, Smotrich himself, has called himself you know a, a fascist and a homophobe. Um, th these are the ideological heirs of America Hane, but but kind of going back to your question about what you sort of Baruch Goldstein. So Baruch Goldstein was also um, a disciple of America Hane. Uh, I believe in was it 1996? I was it 1984. February um, 1994, I believe he commits a massacre. That's exactly right. So he goes into um, a very holy mosque in Hebron, the Ibrahimi Mosque, where it is claimed that the patriarch Abraham is buried. Um, the patriarch Abraham, of course, is holy to Muslims. Ibrahim is mentioned hundreds of times in the Quran. So you, you, he goes into the mosque and slaughters two dozen, 25, 26 Palestinians, worshipers, people praying. Um, and this absolutely radicalizes Hamas, who had up until 94, maybe committed a few violent acts against uh, Israeli civilians. But for the most part, I, I believe I would say it was targeting Israeli military installations and Israeli soldiers. But once Baruch Goldstein went in and committed that horrible atrocity uh, against uh, Palestinian civilians, again, it completely enraged Hamas. And from that point on, they carried out dozens of terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians throughout the 1990s. And then things get developed evolved even worse and got worse in the 2000s in the second intifada um and and, and during which time hamas killed another thousand hamas and other um pal uh, palestinian militant groups killed something like a thousand israeli civilians from 2000 to 2005 of course israel does what it always does it, it's embraced its doctrine of disproportionality which is by the way a war crime but it does what it always does and, and so 1,000 dead Israelis, Israel killed more than 3,000 Palestinians. And as far as I can tell, that is, you know, really up until 2023, up until a, a week ago, um, that was Israel's, that, that was the time period in which Israel showed the most restraint when it killed only three times more Palestinians than Palestinians killed Israelis. 
in almost every single other uh, war, be it, uh, you know, the first Intifada, where Israel killed 10 times as many Palestinians that then Palestinians killed Israelis, or, or be it, um, you know, the, the five wars that Israel has waged on Gaza, where they kill between, let's say, five and 50 times as many Palestinians. You know, Israel embraces the doctrine of disproportionality, that we will inflict much greater harm and destruction and loss of life on the Palestinian side than they ever possibly could against us. And that is part of the reason that Palestinians are so angry and so enraged that they see their lives as worth less. And, and, and I think that's why when you ask Palestinians, well, you know, how come do you support Hamas? Well, they say, look, we've been under the bombs for 20 years and you don't care. But as soon as it's Israel and it's Israeli civilians that are now seeing these you know, spectacular death counts on the civilian side that all of a sudden now you're paying attention. I, I also mentioned, I don't know if you want to comment or if you think it's significant, but uh, I mentioned the assassination of Rabin uh, by another really right-wing figure. Do you think that has any significance in understanding the uh, context of history that we're dealing with? Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, I believe, in 1993. And of course, it was very significant because... There was a great deal of hope and optimism at that time, both in Israel and in Palestine, um, after the signing of the Oslo Accords. Now, the Oslo Accords were criticized and denounced by many Palestinians, by the way, at the time. Um, you know, for example, Edward Said denounced uh, the uh, the Oslo Accords because they essentially gave almost nothing to the Palestinians, and the Palestinians conceded a huge amount. Um, but you know, but you know, we could we could get into to to Oslo if you want. But basically, Yitzhak Rabin was a who who signed the Oslo Accords. Really, you know, was the pioneer behind these Oslo Accords. He was assassinated. And when he was assassinated, that created shockwaves in Israel and Palestine. He was the guy who really was the best hope. He, if, if there was any hope that the Oslo Accords would result in a final status uh, peace this, deal. This was a possibility of reconciliation, in other words. That's, exact, that's exactly right. There was at least some hope for a political solution to this conflict. And when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a Jew, okay, of all people, by a religious Jew, that shattered so many hopes of so many people that this Oslo process would result in a peaceful a resolution to the Israel-Palestine question. So yeah, it, it played a huge role. I want to uh, just correct real quick. Uh, I looked it up. It was uh, November 1995 was the uh, uh, time he was assassinated. Um, anything else to add about the Oslo Accords? I know you said that may be interesting to get into. Yeah, I think you know we're living in a post-Oslo world right now. If if you look at, uh, for example, what is happening in the West Bank and what is happening in Gaza, what is happening um, in the Palestinian-occupied territories, we have inherited an Oslo world. Okay, so we're sort of living in a post-Oslo world. Um, the Palestinian Authority is a creation of the Oslo peace process. Areas A, B, and C are a creation of the Oslo peace process. Right. So the stat, you know, the status quo. Kind of the way the West Bank is divided up into these different cantons, you know, uh, the way um, the laws that pertain to Palestinians in each of those different, uh, you know, areas of the West Bank. This is all a legacy of the Oslo peace process. Now, but what's important to remember is that while the Oslo, uh, while the institutions that were uh, um, created during the Oslo peace process have survived, the Oslo peace process itself died 20 years ago, right? We haven't had negotiations between Israeli leaders and Palestinian leaders in more than a decade. And so you have all these institutions that have kind of long outlived the purpose for which they were created. And so if you look at right now, the institutions that are created, such as the Palestinian Authority, they act essentially 
as mouthpieces and um, as implementers of Israel's occupation. You might call Mahmoud Abbas Israel's chief occupation officer. He collaborates with Israel whenever Israel raids Jenin, like it did a few months back, and slaughtered uh, you know, a, a few dozen Palestinian militants. Uh, he collaborates with Israel whenever Israel decides to expand a settlement, whenever Israeli military you know, raids Ramallah or raids Elbira or raids Nablus or raids Jenin or raids Hebron. This is all carried out in collaboration with the Palestinian Authority. Um, so I think what I would say, look, what I would say about Oslo is that you know, it, 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 you know, there was hope that um, th th there was a lot of hope and optimism. But basically what happened over the course of the process was that both Israel and the Palestinians, there's no one here. I would say both sides here are to blame. But basically, um, you know, Israel in particular had no desire to to uh, stop its uh, settlement uh, enterprise. If anything, it actually accelerated the settlement enterprise. So if you go from 1993, when the Oslo Accords were signed, to 2000, Israel doubled the number of settlers living in the West Bank. Remember, this is the land that Israel and Palestine are supposed to be negotiating over. And so while, all the while, Israel, Israelis and Palestinians are supposed to be building trust to help uh, you know, uh, take steps of trust such that they'd eventually be able to negotiate who would control over, who would get control over the Palestinian territories. Israel was all the while taking more and more of those territories that were in theory supposed to be the outcome of a negotiated settlement. And, and so, so how can you pretend like you're negotiating in good faith when you're at the same time gobbling up more of that territory? At the same time, Israel imposed closures on the West Bank and Gaza throughout the 1990s. Whenever there would be attack, Israel would lock down. Gaza would lock down the West Bank and create massive uh, 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 problems, economic difficulties, mass, you know, for periods of days, if not weeks, sometimes in, in, in some cases for months at a time, Palestinians were not able to move around, not able to go to school, not able to go to their workplace, not able to visit family members or friends or visit a hospital, literally lockdowns, roadblocks. You had 600 uh, uh, you know, military checkpoints in the West Bank preventing Palestinians from going from one place to the other. And during these periods of lockdown and closure, it, you know, you literally have at the entrance and exit of every single Palestinian town and, and city in the West Bank, you have military checkpoints. And so this is happening all the while while Israel is supposed to be building steps towards, uh, you know, creating trust and and, and building, uh, you know, a trust towards that such that there would eventually be a negotiated settlement. So earlier, I, I know you said something that I, I don't want people to necessarily misinterpret and I don't want people to be able to put words in your mouth. You said Israel brought it upon itself. And I think what you meant was not that, uh, you know, these attacks are something that should be embraced or, you know, I mean, they're, they're horrible attacks that happened on October 7th. But I think you're saying, and you can correct me on this, is that, you know, in a way, the Netanyahu government and, and previous governments essentially propped up Hamas against other Palestinian groups. Uh, could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, already from the early 80s, uh, Israel adopted and embraced a policy of divide and rule. This is a classic colonial strategy. The British did this in India and Pakistan. They did it actually in British mandatory Palestine. They did it all around the world where you have different where, where you have <clears throat> Um, you know, two groups, two local groups, and you pit one against the other. That's exactly what Israel did with between Hamas and the PLO, excuse me, the Islamic charity. Um, and it, it, just to not not to interrupt you, but in a lot of ways, uh, in, in U.S. foreign policy circles, a lot of people refer to this kind of thing uh, by the term blowback. But go on. 
Great. That's an excellent point. In fact, the, uh, you know, I think it was uh, Mehdi Hassan who published a piece, I believe in the intercept calling, you know, he had a whole series on blowback and then this is exactly what happened. So they backed Hama, they backed the Islamic charity, um, El Mujama, I think it was called at the time. And uh, as a counterweight uh, to, to PLO, to create div- action, uh, divisions and, and, and fractions within Palestinian society, um, of course, that led to a tremendous amount of blowback today. I mean, you know, come 40, 40 decades later. But so so Israel, you know, pursued, um, you know, kind of brought that about, you know, Israel helped create and help fund uh, and help establish the, uh, the Palestinian, uh, excuse me, uh, um, you know, Hamas in the early 80s. And then I would say um, more recently, um, you know, you go go to we can fast forward to 2012 when you know there were many attempts. Uh, by the way, um, among Hamas leaders, uh, first in 2006, you had a, a, an op-ed piece come out by a Palestinian uh, leader, uh, basically saying, "Look, we are open to a truce. Uh, we're open to uh, a ten-year truce with the state of Israel. Um, these are our demands." Israel completely rejected and ignored that idea. The same thing happened in 2008 when you had another, um, I think it was Khalid Mashal, come out in 2008 and basically say, "Look." We we were open to a truce. Here are our demands. Israel completely ignored them. Uh, in 2012, um, in the lead up to the 2012 war, you had Ahmed Jabari, who was the second in command, the mil- second in the military command, um, who was interfacing uh, with uh, the, the, the Palestinian uh, civilian leadership, who was interfacing uh, with, a, a, at the time, a, a Israeli defense minister, was it Ehud Barak, I believe, who was aware of this. And, he, you know, Ahmed Jabari had a draft. Of a peaceful, uh, 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 of a, uh, 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 um, basically a non-violent, a peaceful truce between Israel um, and Hamas in 2012, and there had been backdoor negotiations for months. After three months of these backdoor negotiations, Ahmed Jabari got a draft in his hand uh, of that, um, of that uh, uh, peace uh, truce, of that truce, uh, um, and within a few hours, Israel dropped a bomb on him and killed him. And and I think the reason was very obvious. Israel did not want a truce with Hamas. Instead, Israel wanted war. And that's exactly what it got. Why did it want a war? Because it wanted to inflict more damage on Hamas. It wanted to weaken Hamas's military capability. It believed that it could deter Hamas uh, from committing violent attacks against Israel, from shooting rockets at Israel, from infiltrating Israeli territory, if it just imposed enough of its military will and dropped enough bombs on Gaza. We all know how that turned out. Also, could you speak a little bit to how Hamas uh, got into power in Gaza, the elections? Because a lot of people are bringing up these elections, but these elections took place over a decade ago, more than a decade ago. And there really hasn't been, to my knowledge, national elections since. So, Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues within Palestinian society over the past 16 years is this Hamas-Fatah divide. So Hamas... uh, won the Palestinian Legislative Council elections in 2000, I believe January 2006. Um, but um, Hama, uh, but Fatah, who was led by uh, Mahmoud Abbas, refused to give up power in Gaza, and Hamas took power by force and took over the Gaza Strip in 2007. It was basically a civil war, I would say. I mean, call it a civil war, um, call it a coup, call it, you know, Hamas, you know, taking over uh, the seat of power that they rightfully won in free and fair democratic elections. You could frame it however you like. But Hamas came to power in Gaza in 2007. And and since then, there's been this rift in, in divide in Palestinian society between Hamas and Fatah. And, and, and so 
that has led to um, an inability. And so the Palestinians, especially Mahmoud Abbas, has prevented a, a, a democratic elections from taking place within the Palestinian occupied territories for for you know nearly two decades now, and that's because he knows that he's lost popularity. He knows that the majority of Palestinians reject the Palestinian Authority government in Ramallah as a, a government that is essentially committed to Israeli security and Israeli occupation and has no will and has no desire to resist Israeli military occupation in any form or in any way. And so, whereas Hamas represents some kind of resistance to uh, Israeli military occupation, and so it has much more, it has much more legitimacy on the Palestinian street. And so, and so for for the past fifteen years, you know, Fatah, led by Mahmoud Abbas, has come up with all kinds of excuses why we can't hold elections. You know, I think the last time there was supposed to be an election was two thousand twenty one, I believe, or maybe it was twenty twenty. But basically, the excuse at that time was, you know, Israel was preventing uh, elections from being held in East Jerusalem. Uh, you know, and so we can't hold an election anywhere because the Palestinians are not being allowed to vote in East Jerusalem. He'll come up with excuses for delaying and and, and uh, uh, you know elections, but. So, so there have not been elections uh, in in the West Bank for 16 years, and there haven't been elections in Gaza for 16 years either, uh, um, because Hamas is not a democratic government. Hamas rules the Gaza Strip um, autocratically. You know, there's no uh, semblance at all of of due process. The people are executed um, at will. Uh, for being, uh, you know, for resisting the regime, for being deemed collaborators with Israel. There's nothing democratic about Hamas's government in the Gaza Strip, nor is there anything democratic about Mahmoud Abbas's government in, in Ramallah. I want to note, so we talked about clashes between Israel and Hamas uh, prior to this, but I also want to note uh, there's a really great uh, Times of Israel article about Netanyahu propping up Hamas even after those clashes in the past. So I'm going to read this real quick, and then I'll let you speak. Uh, you know, this Times Israel article says, according to various reports, Netanyahu made a similar point at a Likud faction meeting in early 2019, when he was quoted as saying that those who oppose a Palestinian state should support the transfer of funds to Gaza because maintaining the separation between the Palestinian Authority and the West in the West Bank and Hamas and Gaza would prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. That's from, for years, Netanyahu propped up Hamas. Now it's blown up in our face by Tal Schneider, October 8th, 2023, the Times of Israel. Uh, do you want to comment on that at all? Because it, it sounds like Netanyahu has, was popping up, propping up Hamas even after uh, skirmishes between Israel and Hamas in the past. There's a quote, I believe, from Betel Smotrich, uh, who's the current fi finance minister um, in, in Israel. There's a quote, I believe, going back to already 2017. He said something to the effect of um, the Hamas is an asset while the Palestinian Authority is a liability. Why did he say that? I think there are a few reasons, and you already touched on a few of them. Number one, the entire Western world, the United, the European Union, the United States, Canada, Japan, right, the uh, Australia deem Hamas to be a terrorist organization um, for legitimate reasons. They indiscriminately uh, target civilians, and so the result of that is that whenever you know Hamas engages in military conflict with Israel, the entire Western world sees these militant Islamists, these people who you know embrace a kind of very conservative Islamicism. These people who have no regard for, uh, you know, loss of Israeli civilian life, they see them as terrorists, and that gives Israel a blank check to pursue its policies 
uh, in, in of Judaization of Jerusalem and its policies of apartheid and total domination of Palestinians in the West Bank, which is what it really cares about. For Israel, Gaza is a nuisance. You know, Gaza is um, you know a minor nuisance where you have uh, you know a half dozen Israeli towns, maybe a dozen Israeli towns in the south who face constant rocket barrages. But basically, aside from that. The average Israeli is unaffected by the blockade and the siege on Gaza, and you know, imposing collective punishment, uh, um, you know, and denying basic basic human rights to two million people living in the Gaza Strip. For the most part, Israelis are unaffected by that. But at the same time, Hamas's existence and its presence and its active role in the conflict gives Israel sort of this blank check to say it's defending itself. Um, and so I think that's the first reason why you have many Israeli leaders uh, like Betzel Smotrich, uh, like uh, Bibi Netanyahu come out and basically say, look, this, you know, Hamas is an asset. At the same time, um, I think the other point you raise is an excellent one um, that, you know, by um, <clears throat> by uh, having by empowering Hamas and making sure Qatar uh, is able to fund Hamas, making sure that you know maybe Iranian funding is able to uh, get through to Hamas, um, that you have now uh, that as long as Hamas is around and as long as the Palestinian Authority is around, you have this huge rift within Palestinian society, and it's always much easier to defeat and destroy what you perceive to be your enemy when it's divided than when it's united, and that's obviously the case. For decades, Israel has sought to divide and conquer Palestinians, to create rifts within Palestinian society, to get one Palestinian to collaborate uh, uh, um, against another Palestinian. I mean, that, that that's really the essence of Israeli rule. It's to go in and turn Palestinians against one another and create rifts within Palestinian society. You know, just, just to give you one classic example, you know, Israel will go in to a village where you had peaceful protesters in the West Bank. Um, it, it did this throughout the West Bank in Beit Sira, for example. You had protests against the Israeli wall and occupation in the early 2000s. The Palestinians were protesting every day, stop building a wall and taking our land. And then Israel went in, and basically what it did was it pulled the work permits of the more of the older Palestinians when the younger Palestinians were protesting. You know, creating this real rift within the village, the Palestinian village of Beit Sira, which borders Israel to the northwest of Ramallah. So it's constantly trying to turn Palestinians against one another and create risks within Palestinian society. And it did that with Hamas and Fatah, just as you pointed out. And it's doing it between Gaza and the West Bank. It's doing it between, you know, cutting off Jerusalem from the West Bank, wherever it's cutting off areas A from areas B and C. You know, it's basically one of Israel's principal strategies for maintaining total domination over Palestinians in Gaza, Jerusalem, and the West Bank. Real quick, could you talk very briefly uh, about, you, you mentioned areas A, areas C. If people are confused by what you mean by that, uh, could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, so these these were um, these were legacies of the Oslo peace process. So remember in 1993, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin famously shake hands um, in Camp David in the United States. Um, they agree to this uh, peace process during which time, uh, you know, the Palestinian Authority would gradually be given more control over more parts of the occupied Palestinian territories. And so the very first agreement in 1993 that was signed gave uh, gave the Palestinian Authority control over 
by control, I mean civilian and military control over, not military, but let's say security control, right? Palestinians would be allowed to police the streets, right? That's what I mean. So, um, so and by civil, civilian control, I mean, right, there's, they have a, a municipality, um, they organize garbage collection, they clean the streets, um, you know, they, they fund schools, uh, et cetera. And so basically what you have is, in 1993, um, Palestinians are given control over Jericho and Gaza, and that's essentially Area A, right? So Area A refers to where Palestinians have both security and civilian control. And then over the course of the next seven years, you you, you saw the introduction of new areas where Israel was gradually giving more control over the Palestinians. So in Area B, which uh, I think came into existence, I can't remember if it was 94 or 95, but there's a series of agreements that comes into, uh, <clears throat> that comes to, um, you know, into, um, you know, existence in, you know, in those intervening years between 93 and 2000. And, and, and so you have this new areas B, area B are basically, I would say most, many more rural, like villages, um, you know, somewhat more rural areas of the West Bank, you know, uh, where Palestinians are now granted civilian control, but not security control. That's area B. So area A is total uh, Palestinian. Uh, this is again, this is all in theory, right? Because in reality, Israel regularly invades all of these areas. And so Israel ultimately has total security control over whatever it wants because there's no power stopping it from entering even area A. But in any case, this is like theoretically speaking, area A is full Palestinian security and civilian control. Area B, again, more rural parts of the West Bank came to be Israeli security control, but Palestinian civilian control. And then Area C, by the way, which is more than 50% of the West Bank, including the entire Jordan Valley, including the entire border with um, you know, with Jordan, that became Area C, during in which Israel retained both complete civilian and security control. And it's really been within Area C, which, okay, so then ask yourself, why is it that, you know, Israel decided Area C should be here and Area B should uh, should be here and Area A should be here. Essentially, it had to do with Israel's desire uh, to control as much land as possible with as few Palestinians as possible on that land. And so Area C is the most uh, – because, of course, Israel eventually wants to take over kind of Area C. That's why it was the last area to be given – to you know that, to be uh, transferred over to the Palestinians. In fact, it, it was never transferred over. It's still within total kind of you know military occupation. So basically, think of it as like, Area C is like the, the largest part of the West Bank with the least number of Palestinians on it. Area B is like, let's say, you know, has some Palestinians, but not that many Palestinians. And Israel kind of wants it, but there's still enough Palestinians that it doesn't really want to take control over. And then Area A is like the most densely populated Palestinian uh, you know, population centers. Think Ramallah, think Nablus, think Janine, think Hebron, think uh, Beit Lahem. So and that's Area C. So that's kind of uh, at a bird's eye view, areas A, B and C for you. I think one thing people really need to understand about this, especially people that are new to this topic, is this is not a conflict between two states. There is no Palestinian state right now. Uh, that's what the aspiration is. How important do you think it is for people to understand that what we're dealing with is not a state versus state conflict? Yeah, I think Palestinians take issue with the fact that people even call it a conflict. You know, I mean, even the words we use to describe the situation, that's why I'm just trying to say sometimes Israel-Palestine question or, you know, you know the Israel-Palestine issue, which is a bit, bit more of a neutral framing rather than pretend like this is a conflict between two parties of equal power, um, you know, and of equal responsibility for what's happening. That is not what is happening. You know, Israel, it, there's... People talk about, oh, you know, we, we believe in the two-state solution, but what we have right now is a one-state reality in which everything between the river and the sea is controlled by the state of Israel, 
um, you know, and Israel, and that includes the Gaza Strip, which Israel controls six of the seven land borders. It controls the, the groundwater, the airspace, the sea, the maritime seacoast. It controls the telecommunication networks, the population registry. It controls internet access via those telecommunication networks. Um, you know, so so, and that's that's true in the West. That's true in Gaza, just as as it is true in the West Bank, right? So. There, there is no Palestinian state. There are small areas within historic Palestine, such as Gaza, um, or such as, let's say, Ramallah, or maybe Bethlehem, where Palestinians have some degree of internal autonomy. Think of a, think of it like a prison where, you know, Israel controls the, the, the outer perimeter of the prison. Israel is manning all the, you know, um, the towers, the security towers. Israel controls the gates. And then within the prison, you know, Palestinians can kind of decide, you know, how much food each prisoner gets and, you know, how much time they get to spend in the courtyard. And that, that's, I think, a nice way of thinking about basically the, the nature of the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. I want to thank you for saying that, because uh, sometimes I say conflict, and I do think uh, you may be right to call it more the, the question rather than the conflict. So thank you for that. Uh, before we start wrapping up, uh, I think there's a lot of information work we're going right on right now, as I said earlier, and there's a lot of propaganda. What do you see as the biggest propaganda uh, that people are being hit with right now? And how would you push back on that propaganda? I think that when 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 is when Palestinians die, their deaths are invisible. There are no reporters in Gaza from the outside. Israel blocks Gaza from uh, uh, from uh, Israel does not allow reporters to enter the Gaza Strip. I, I Israel, was going to say in that regard, I, I I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Gideon Levy at Haaretz. Uh, I remember meeting him uh, a few years ago at a conference, and it's interesting. He's covered Gaza for years, but but he's not allowed into Gaza anymore to report on it uh, as he was in the past. But go on. Exactly right. Israel does the as much as it can to prevent coverage on the ground coverage of these gruesome, violent. Uh, attacks. Uh, you know, we've had nearly three thousand Palestinians die in a week. You I mean, cut out there for a second. You said Israel, and, and Israel prevents. Is Israel prevents reporters from reporting on the ground in Gaza and also in the West Bank? By the way, okay, um, and, and and that the reasons are very obvious. Israel does not want the world to know what it's doing in Gaza. It does not want the world to find out that if you go to Gaza right now. People are literally thirsty. They don't have enough water to drink. You're seeing reports coming out right now. People, you know, a Palestinian girl I saw, uh, you know, share an Instagram video where she said, I had 50 milliliters of water for the day and it was stolen from me by a little kid. And she's like, what am I supposed to do? The kid was dying of thirst, but it's like, I don't have water now. And 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 that 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 reportage is just not coming out. I mean, can you imagine if you know Israelis in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem didn't have enough water to drink? I mean, there'd be out there'd be international outrage. And yet, instead, what we see is we see the entire international community, President Joe Biden, you know, the president of the EU, all coming out and saying Israel has a right to defend itself. I mean, it's just absolutely the double standard in terms of. You know how much suffering is allowed to take place on the Palestinian side, um, and the total lack uh, of calls for an end to that suffering, which Israel could end tomorrow if it wanted to. It could end it right now if it wanted to. And so the total lack of interest and coverage 
of what is happening to Palestinians in comparison to, you know, when when there's one Israeli that dies from a rocket attack, you have international media outlets flooding state roads. You have Israeli media, you have Israeli military uh, uh, caravans taking journalists on tours of the uh, of the towns in the south that have been affected by the violence, which has been horrible and it should be reported on. But so should the reporting. Uh, but so should there be reporting uh, on what is happening in, in Gaza and the West Bank to the Palestinians. And I think if if, if only, you know, if people realize that they're being prevented from knowing what's even happening there, that Israel is not even allowing journalists to enter the Gaza Strip. If they realize that their entire media diet is being controlled by the people who are inflicting the violence against Palestinians. I think that is one of the key takeaways and one of the things people need to realize um, in terms of the propaganda and information war. One thing I wanted to mention was I, I recently uh, saw a video that's been going viral of a survivor of the attacks who was from uh, Kibbutz, I think it's Kibbutz Berry, which I, I think most of the residents there are, are on the sort of liberal end of the Zionist spectrum. Uh, but in any case, she was saying, you know, Netanyahu has let us down. There needs to be a political solution. Gazans are dying. Uh, so even Israelis are saying this. Uh, meanwhile, here in the U.S., we're being told, well, what do you want Israel to do? Are they just not supposed to respond to this attack? What would you say to those people who are saying, well, what should Israel do instead? The first thing Israel should do is just stop bombing innocent civilians. That's number one. Number two, it should stop cutting off water and electricity and food to 2.3 million innocent civilians. Because here's why, okay? When you when you tell 2.3 million civilians they're going to pay the price for the gruesome acts of violence committed by their political leaders, what you are doing is for, which you are creating 100, if not 1,000, if not 10 times, 10,000 times as many Palestinian, future Palestinian militants who will be enraged by what is happening, okay? The more Palestinian uh, uh, suffering that occurs, the more indiscriminate violence you commit against Palestinians, the more future terrorists you're creating. And that's the history of of, 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 of the, the, the Palestine question, right? This is the story. It's There were no terrorists. There were no Palestinian terrorists in the 1960s. Uh, uh, there were no Palestinian... I'm talking about in the occupied territories, okay? There were no Palestinian terrorists in the 1970s, even up until 1987. Like I said, there was no Hamas. There were no rocket attacks. There were no suicide bombings. But after two decades of brutal Israeli military occupation, the humiliation Palestinians endure at checkpoints, the harassment Palestinians face at the workplace, after two and a half decades of that, there it was a nonviolent uprising, which Israel, again, committed, it was suppressed with violent resistance. And this has created the cycle of violence whereby every time a Palestine, a Palestinians resist, Israel responds with disproportionate use of force, which then creates even more Palestinian militants, which then it leads Israel to apply even more disproportionate force. And that has gotten us to where we are today, which is the most violent, gruesome act Palestinians have ever committed against Israelis. And so what I would expect is that Israel commits even more like it's done, its doctrine of disproportionality, which, you know, in just eight days, Israel has killed 3,000 Palestinians, three, already three times as many dead Palestinians as dead Israelis. And this is the most deadly attack on Israel in its entire history. Um, and so what will happen now that you've killed 3,000 3, Palestinians, each one of those Palestinians has relatives and, friend, and friends and family, and each one of those kids is going to be want to be a terrorist now. I was just going to mention real quick, and I hope this isn't an odd question, but I mean, when people say what else could Israel have done than what they're doing now, 
you know, one thing I've thought about, and I, I'm not sure this is possible, but uh, couldn't they have worked with maybe the Palestinian Authority or other Palestinian groups to get Hamas out of Gaza? Couldn't they have done anything other than this indiscriminate bombing campaign, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I think the way to build trust, the way to move towards a political solution is through negotiation, um, it's through concession, um, and it's through nonviolence. That's how you reach a political outcome. You negotiate, you get in a room with Hamas, with Fatah, and you say, okay, what are your demands? Okay, what can we do? And and, and But Israel has no interest in that. They're, they're thirsty for, and hungry for, for, for revenge and violence and blood. And so what you need to do is you need cooler heads to prevail. You, you need to take a step back and say, okay, here we have 2.3 million people who are living an incredible uh, um, a life of siege and occupation and suffering uh, with, 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 without ac- access to clean water, without access to food, without access to electricity. Um, let's take a step back. Let's try to ease the humanitarian crisis. Let's try and get these people living normal lives where they're not desperate, where they're not committing grotesque acts of violence. Guess what happens when you're desperate and you have no hope? You commit horrible acts of violence when you're completely hopeless. Everyone knows this. The reason people commit self-harm is because they have no hope. It's this total feeling of despair. And so the reason people commit any kind of violence be on themselves or on others is when they lose hope. And so you need to give people hope. And the way you give people hope is by returning their lives to a state of normalcy. And so I think that is the only way out of this. And ultimately, that is what I think Israel needs to do to pursue eventually. I mean, we're a long time from this, but eventually a political resolution with the Palestinians. Anything you want to say in closing that we missed? And what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation that we've been having for the past uh, hour and 10 minutes or so? Look, I think just the main thing to realize is that history did not begin eight days ago. And contrary to what most of the major media outlets would have you believe, um, there's a long history and a long backstory to Israel's siege on Gaza and its blockade and and imposition of collective punishment on millions of innocent Palestinians. And ultimately, it's the Palestinian people that are suffering here. And so what I would tell everyone is like, we, we need to, revenge is the worst feeling in the world. You know, a desire for revenge and blood, this is going to achieve nothing. It's only going to achieve death both on the Palestinian side and, by the way, the Israeli side. Okay? And and by the way, the Israeli soldiers that are going into Hamas and committing all these gruesome atrocities, the ones that are about to invade, um, you know, with the ground invasion that is expected, if it hasn't already happened, I've been away from the news for the past few hours. But, you know, basically, like, this is causing suffering and trauma and pain all around. And, and, and there's just no reason for it. There's no reason to go. You're not going to be able to eradicate, even if you, er- quote unquote, eradicate all 30,000, um, you know, card carrying members of Hamas, there's still another 2.27, 2.297 million Palestinians that are going to be enraged and are going to pick up arms. You can't destroy the concept of resistance by even if you kill all 30,000 30, Hamas members, that will not that will not lead to an end to the to, to the to the conflict. You, what you need is you need to come to reconciliation. And the way you do that is through negotiation. And the way you do that is through concession. Well, Zachary, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? And maybe you can tell them a little bit about Palestine Nexus. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter, uh, renamed X, at underscore Zach Foster. 
You can also uh, find me at palestinenexus.com. I have a I have a newsletter that I write uh, that I publish once a week. It's uh, it's about anything and everything Palestine, history, politics, culture. Um, so you can subscribe to that that newsletter at palestinenexus.com. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found enlightening my conversation with Zachary Foster. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, I've been working on Overdrive. Please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.